0: Hello and welcome to the January 2021 edition of the Xcoders Community Podcast. I'm Jared Sorge, and I've got something a little bit different this month. I've got QA from Xcoders members in the community from Twitter and Slack and elsewhere. If you want to send in your own question to be answered on a later episode, because if we get them, we'll always make time for them, you can send a, send an email to info at seattlexcoders.org. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can uh, send us a message on Twitter at Xcoders or join our our Slack community and you can either chat in there or you can send us a message directly. Uh, you can get there through xcoders.org slash slack. Our first question comes from at songpocket on Twitter and they ask, I have a non-computer science degree but I've released an app on the App Store. How do I make myself stand out to recruiters of iOS developers? This is an interesting question. Um, I myself don't have a degree, and I know that there are lots of people out there who are doing iOS work after having gotten a different kind of degree. Um, I think a couple of things you could do, um, definitely post that or put a link to that app in your resume uh, as you're getting in, in touch with uh, recruiters. Um, put yourself in LinkedIn as, as an iOS developer looking for work, things like that um i would say start making connections because m- the building up a professional network it sounds really hokey um but it's totally worthwhile to do and i think the the connections you make throughout the community like joining the xcoder slack um attending ios meetups there's been a lot more opportunity for stuff like that remotely now um because We can't go anywhere and gather any large groups. And there are those networking opportunities um, to find job openings and start applying. So instead of waiting for recruiters to come to you, you can find opportunities to go to them. Subscribe to newsletters because there's always job postings at the bottom uh, of those newsletters like iOS Dev Weekly. I think Indie, iOS Weekly, there's several out there. Um, And they all have... Spon- there, I'll have some sponsors by folks looking for iOS developers for their their company. Don't don't let your non CS degree background hold you back in any way. Bill yourself as a, as an iOS developer because you are an iOS developer, and and gun for that job that you want. Making those connections in the in the community and in your network is going to be huge, um, and that's probably where you'll get. The, the first entryway into that iOS developer world. And honestly, once you have the first one, then people will start coming to you a lot more uh, in recruiting um, once you start getting some of that history. But the first one definitely can be can be difficult. It can be a struggle, um, but keep at it. And when, if and when you start feeling that discouragement or anything, definitely lean on the community that you've, that, that we have at Xcoders or that you might have built up elsewhere and uh, keep going because there's a job out there for you. I know it. Next question comes from Phil uh, in the Slack. I'm struggling trying to find some Apple documentation around SwiftUI's map kit, map view, and annotations. Why do you think the docs here are incomplete and are there other resources I can go to for help? This is a, this is a tricky question. I know that there are several members of Xcoders who work on the Apple docs and they, they do really good work and they are, I think, vastly outnumbered engineer to documentation writer. And it's a very difficult job to, to try to write the docs that are going to help us build our apps. And when the thing you're looking for isn't there, uh, it's easy to get frustrated. I know that the Apple's been putting a lot of energy and money into uh bolstering that which when you're not finding what you need isn't much uh comfort. Um but the the gap that Apple's leaving there has actually opened up the opportunities for uh, other people, which yes, it's absolutely not our job to write Apple's docs. That's not what I'm saying. Um but I think there's a burgeoning community around writing blog posts and giving talks and uh, conferences around iOS uh, development and Swift and Swift UI. And there's a big energy, especially around Swift UI, because it is so new and, and exciting. So resources like Hacking with Swift are great. Swift by Sundell is great. I'll put links to the stuff in the show notes. Um, and starting off like with a basic web search, I use DuckDuckGo. And I did find one on using MapKit with SwiftUI. I don't know if that's exactly the control you're looking for. Um, and when you're trying to learn something and trying to figure out uh, how to get your task done, um, having incomplete documentation is is really frustrating, and I totally get that. My encouragement would be to file the feedback. Um, Apple Apple knows, I'm sure, where their holes are, but to hear... To hear where people are struggling adds another one to the the dupe list and maybe that'll get prioritized over something else that where it might not have i would also say to to look at some of the, the the headers like the swift generated headers uh or the objective c headers if those are still around those usually have different documentation and comments to them than apple docs would and maybe you'll find some nuggets there on how to use it and you know what's really cool? When you figure out how to do what it is that you want to do, then that gives you the opportunity to share that knowledge uh, with the community as well. So you could go and write a blog post, you could post something on on Twitter, or you could give a talk at your local group or at Xcoders. I'd love to have you on and have and hear um, what what your solution was to this problem. That'd be really really cool. And like I said, to Song Pocket, uh, similarly is to be persistent at it. Like. There's a lot of failure in programming. Build failed, test failed, and then you figure out what happened, what went wrong, how do I fix it? Um, when you hit hit a wall, if you hit a wall, definitely hit us up. Uh, you gave me this question in Slack that we have a debug channel where you can go and ask your question and uh, hopefully someone someone around will, will be able to help. Um, we're all trying to help each other. And that's one of the really cool things that I've loved about Xcoders. Xcoder John writes, what are your thoughts on server-side Swift and other ways Swift can be used beyond iOS and macOS? This is really cool. Um, I, I myself am a big fan of server-side Swift. Uh, I've used the Vapor framework, and I've used that for my my personal website at jsorge.net. I also use it for my my small company's website at uh, Taphouse Software, taphouse.io. Those are both Vapor-powered uh, applications. Um, my my personal blog is is like I said a Vapor app, um, but it's uh, it's it's its own blog engine. Uh, using it's it, I use the text bundle file format on on disk, and so it's a it's an engine that can take your URL and translate that into it'll find the text bundle on disk and parse it out. and And I really like how it's how it works. Um, and so I, I'm a big fan. And and over the last, I don't know, year or so, uh, I've been using Swift Package Manager a lot more, um, especially for things like command line tools. And there there are uh, a couple of Swift packages that kind of feel like they give me superpowers in a way. The first is uh, Swift Argument Parser, which is done by Apple, um, which it gives you like all the stuff you need to make a command line tool and you can define the the arguments that you need any options and flags that you might be able to send need to send in it'll create like the help screen and everything for you when you invoke it at the command line it'll parse out all the arguments sent in and um, only let you run if you satisfies satisfy those requirements it's fantastic and the other is a tool called or a package called Shell Out by John Sundell, and what it does is it easily lets you run other command line commands uh, in Swift. So it's all done in in uh, throwing functions, and you can it'll give you the the return text as the output. So if you got um you, like your your invocation becomes standard out essentially. And it's so good. Those two things let me do so much at the command line that would take ages for me to do in something like shell or, uh, or sorry, in, yeah, in, in like bash or, uh, another scripting language that I'm not familiar with as much like Ruby or Python. Um, being able to do it all in Swift is fantastic. It's super cool. Um, Outside of macOS and iOS, I know there are like hobby projects to get Swift on Windows, Swift on Android, uh, running stuff on a Raspberry Pi, which is like a Linux flavor. So I, I think that those are interesting little niches. Um, I do think server-side Swift is it has a very bright future ahead of it. Maybe Apple will will dog food at enough and like replace their Web Object Store with it someday. I don't know, but um, that'd be be kind of cool, uh, but I think there is definitely a bright future in iOS and macOS, not just for apps but for other utilities. I think that's that's definitely in the cards. I think the the next evolution is probably letting us to be able to make packages into apps. Like right now, if you wanted to have an iOS app or a Mac app, you have to have uh, or you can't make that out of a Swift package. Uh, I think that might be coming, but who knows. And then I got a few questions from, uh, I asked this in the Underdog Devs uh, Slack. If you might remember, a couple episodes ago, I interviewed uh, Rick Walter, and he sent me a few questions um, from, from the Underdog Devs group. So, so the first question, what impact does the M1 and subsequent computing improvements have on iOS development, if any? And... The biggest impact that we've seen so far. I think there are probably other Apple Silicon related improvements to come, um, but immediately after the bat is compile times and execution times. I remember when the in, the reviews of the M1 Max first came out, and I think it was Matthew Panzerino. He compiled WebKit, and it took like a third of the time to compile, uh, and it it only chewed up, I think, 10% of the total battery versus versus the Intel Mac he was running on. It was about um, like 100% of the battery was used in compiling WebKit. So compile times and build times are significantly faster. And uh, a friend of mine, he put together some snapshot tests for uh, his company's app. And on an Intel uh, Mac, I think it might have been a Mac Mini, the screenshot test would last about take about an hour to execute uh and on the m one mini that he had, it took about eight and a half minutes, which is just bonkers to me how much faster and how good uh this first round of apple silicon chips uh really are and I'm so excited so excited for the next round uh to see what they've got got for us but like that's the big thing right now. Is everything's just so much faster, and when that that iteration loop is is much tighter, and you've got uh, faster faster incremental compiles, and your Swift UI previews are rendering more quickly, like everything happens faster, then there's less time for your brain to get distracted and wander away, or you go and check Twitter, and there's ten minutes gone because you had to wait for a two minute recompile. Now that's just a few seconds and you can stay focused on what you're trying to do. So I think like it could have a productivity boost uh, in that way. Um, in the future, I think like it depends on what they want to do with, with the the computers, obviously, but like if they put a touchscreen on a Mac, which I don't think is out of the question uh, long-term, then that unlocks lots of opportunities, right? Like the iOS simulator, you could have, an iPhone on your touchscreen Mac, (laughs) which would be so cool. And it's not really simulating all that much anymore because you're not making a different processor architecture version of your app. You could, or the, the OS itself could impose the same kind of memory constraints and pressures on the simulator device if they wanted to, to actually simulate what it's like holding the phone in your hand. Uh, Or on the iPad simulator, you could have like pencil input and have it be an iPad on your Mac. Um, I could see stuff like that coming over the years, not necessarily this year, I think, but um, definitely in the long haul, I could totally see stuff like that coming down the pipe. And that's all powered by uh, Apple Silicon Advancements. Rick's next, next question. Over the last few years, how have junior or mid or senior level iOS devs fared in the job market? Relatively hard or easy to find work? Have you noticed any trends? I think it's different for, for everybody. Speaking from my experience last year, when I got laid off, I found a lot of opportunities for job interviews. Um, and the market for developers seems really quite good overall. I think places are looking for more mid and senior level folks than juniors, which is too bad. Uh, I think it would be fantastic if more, more jobs were available for juniors that then could uh, offer like mentorship and help them uh, level up in their career into mids and seniors. Um, But overall the job market is really pretty good. Um, I see openings quite frequently. You, you do have to take into consideration like, are you willing to relocate? Will, will the, the opportunities be uh, available remotely? And overall, if the the company might be a good fit for you. But I think the, the market itself is, is really quite good. Um, and I don't know that I see that going away anytime soon, um, which is really cool since I like working in, on iOS stuff and I want to stay in this industry for a long, long time. Our next question is, what are your thoughts on core data? Should I use it or not? I like Core Data overall. Um, I think it's it's really good at what it does, and it's gotten better over the years. I think well, I've shipped I shipped one app, uh, my app Scorebook, with with Core Data, and I would definitely refactor some things now uh, if I were doing it again, um, especially if I was doing it in Swift. I think Swift has changed a fair bit of what we expect out of things like model objects and. Um, it's definitely, I think, a good tool f- to use um, for, for an object graph and for persistence. It's definitely worth knowing, and if your app requires that, that kind of persistence, I'm always a fan of using the first-party frameworks and tools over third-party uh, solutions. So all that said, I think it's definitely worth learning if your, if your app or project needs persistence. There might be some other options for you if you need something just lighter weight because there is a lot of machinery and moving parts around core data. There are some good resources like the um, the objc.io uh, folks have a good core data book uh, around using it with Swift and some, some helpful wrappers. Um, there's also a, a great talk from Paul Garaki at Xcoders several years ago now that I leaned on a lot when I was learning core data of just, like, some helpful tips and tricks. Um, and this is all, like, object C, to totally pre-Swift, uh, even pre-NS, persistent container, I think that's what it's called, being introduced, which kind of takes care of a lot of the the principles that he was talking about, but, like, having the one thing that kind of coordinates all of your core data operations is definitely helpful. So I would look at, and this persistent container, I would look at the objc.io book and Donnie Walls just actually released a, a book at the end of last year called Practical Core Data. I'll put links to all this stuff in the show notes. So if you if you are interested in core data and looking at it, um, I would definitely look at those resources uh, to give you a leg up um, and to give you some some kind of best practices for how to do it in a modern way. If possible, I would look at abstracting away the storage mechanism from the actual objects that you're using in your code so for instance if you've got a person as a as a struct that you pass around to various table views or uh, what have you and you store that person in core data have that have some adapter in the middle that goes from the managed object subclass of the the persisted person to the struct that you pass around in your code And that way you lean less on things like the managed object context and uh, concurrency and places where things can, can easily fall over. Uh, And by doing that, you could then even swap out core data for some other persistence uh, system. Say Apple this year releases a Swifty version of, of core data or whatever the next persistence thing is like the, swift UIification of core data if that makes any sense um have core data be an implementation detail rather than uh something that kind of um spiders throughout the rest of your app and if you want to move to something else becomes a real pain to clean up if you isolate it and make it a thing that's easily swap swappable for some other persistence layer like you might have to write some sort of of migration tool from one format to the other for a couple versions and and that's okay. But your, the rest of your app shouldn't know that you're using core data. I guess that's the bigger, bigger point. And then our last question, would you recommend those entering the industry try to learn web before learning iOS to get a job? I think it depends on how you want to bill yourself. Are you a developer jack of all trades or do you want to specialize in iOS? Because iOS can get really deep. And if you spread yourself out between iOS and web development, which itself can get really deep, uh, the the term full stack applies, in my mind, equally to iOS as well as it does web. Because on the iOS, the, the air quotes back end kind of things are are your, your build system, your... Um, how, how you actually p- go from the code that you're writing and how are you architecting the code that you're writing to the final outputted uh, IPA file. There's a lot there and it's more than writing some Swift code that gets into an app on your device. Um, you can talk about front-end iOS work being stuff that's on the user interface that's On the glass that you're interacting with but then there's also the the back-end work which is which is how does the stuff get built what's the architecture of the app what kind of tooling especially as you have a a medium-sized team so like six or seven to a big team of 70 80 100 plus you're going to have tooling teams architecture teams networking teams Um, interface design and design system teams, you're going to have lots of different facets of iOS development, just like there are lots of different facets of web development. And some people really benefit by knowing lots of different languages, lots of different stacks, but maybe not to the depth of someone who specializes on one particular stack. So if you want to be more broadly a software developer, then learning some web is is a good idea. If you want to be an iOS developer who's deep and knowledgeable on all of the the parts of, of the stack, then I don't know that you need to learn much web. For me personally, I don't really know any web web development. Um, I've written I've written some HTML. I've written a little bit of CSS. Um, I did write my, my website. Um, but I wrote that in Swift because I know Swift and I didn't want to have to learn a whole other language in order to put out my website. Uh, if I had to learn that something else, then I probably wouldn't have done it. Um, but because I had, I had the knowledge of the the language and I knew the language could work for the web. That's what I went with. And it's worked out really well for me so far. So that wraps up this month's edition of the podcast. Thank you to everyone who sent in questions. And again, if you have any other questions that you'd like us to answer later on, uh, info at clxcoders.org, hit us up in the Slack or on Twitter. And we will talk to you again next month. Thanks.